0: Whether Jesus denounced the use of a homophobic slang term in one of his sermons. What's she going to do then? Well, that's what I've been sitting here contemplating. First, I'm going to deliver this case to Marcellus. Then, basically, I'm just going to walk the earth. What you mean, walk the earth? You know, like Cain in Kung Fu. Walk from place to place, meet people, get in adventures. And how long do you intend to walk the Earth? Till God puts me where he wants me to be. And what if you don't do that? You know, if it takes forever, then I'll walk forever. Welcome to Walk the Earth... I'm Greg, and I want to explore this question in some detail today, because I think that the answer is probably not as clear as it could be. I've vacillated a little bit between the possibility that I'm going to come away with a probably response to this question, or perhaps just sticking with a maybe response to this question. Question, But it is somewhere in that realm of the affirmative, just perhaps mildly affirmative. But I want to tie the question on Walk the Earth today a little bit back to the last question I did on Walk the Earth, which was whether modern evangelical outreach has become an inoculation against the Holy Spirit. And what I meant by that is... If you do evangelism badly enough, if you're heavy-handed, if you're dictatorial, if you have a theocratic approach, for example, do you actually chase more people away from actually responding to the call of the Holy Spirit when they hear it? And these two tie together in an interesting way, because I want to look at the word fool in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, and talk a little bit about the story behind the story. So probably the best way to handle this is to go straight in to just the two or three verses I'm talking about today in the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 5, starting with verse 21, the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, raka is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. This is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount, recorded in Matthew's Gospel, warning about several things, that it's not enough just to avoid the temptation to murder, <laughs> that it's more important, in fact, to not turn that anger into violence, that the anger is the problem, or that the, uh, the murderous intent is the problem, whether the uh, act is taken upon or not. And then from there, he goes in to this use of this term, rakah, and finally, you fool. So what do I mean by evangelism being done so badly that it can turn people off from religion? The first time I can remember personally encountering this passage in the Bible in a relevant way, I was in the 7th grade. Now, my 7th uh, grade, my junior high school at the time, was not exactly the safest place. I referred in uh, inappropriate conversations before to concepts like bullying and and I certainly experienced that both uh, in both junior high schools that I attended. And it was very important, I think, to have a close knit circle of friends, to have people that you could trust, people who would have your back, if you were in a junior high school setting where violence was you know, normal. I may talk about this a little bit at an upcoming Inappropriate Conversation show, talking about the friendship of boys and what that kind of relationship at that young age is about affirming and also about avoiding. I'll get to that, in other words, in a future show. But the story I want to tell today is about a well-meaning, but perhaps misguided teacher overreacting misinterpreting misunderstanding and overstepping his bounds because this was the late 1970s and words that you might hear used freely and often would include cool it was the era that happy days was on tv and fonzie was a central figure i suppose and the you know, language varies with each generation, and the terminology that was used in the 80s was even more, in some ways, uh, strange and time-specific than what I experienced in the 70s, because I was in school during both of those decades. But I can remember once yelling across a, a, a school courtyard, like a recess area, cutting between buildings, going from one class to another, to a friend of mine named Brian saying, asking if he was cool, and him saying he was cool, and me yelling back... Yeah, it's cool. It's cool. And by the time I got to my next class, which was geography, the teacher pulled me aside before the class started and read me the riot act, that I needed to understand that I was not just behaving inappropriately as a student. And I interrupted to apologize for raising my voice if he was worried about how loudly I was speaking. And he told me that it wasn't the tone of my voice, or at least not that alone. It was the words I was using. And didn't I understand that Jesus taught in the Bible that the use of those words would send me straight to hell? Let's unpack this for a minute. Obviously, one boy telling another boy that he's cool is probably not in any way violating any precept you can come up with in the Bible. I sort of imagine that in their own way, Jesus' disciples had this own kind of camaraderie between each other. They might have used the words, hey, it's cool, or you're cool with each other. But I think that's probably how Jesus wanted them to get along. (laughs) When he talked about uh, love one another even as I loved you, I think he wanted them to have that sort of collegial spirit. But he misunderstood me and thought I was calling somebody a fool in a loud voice from across the courtyard and chose in this non-parochial school, in this public school, to use that as a means by which of giving somebody that he may have known was a Christian student, I don't know. Maybe he didn't. But it was his opportunity to give me a Bible lesson, and to give me a Bible lesson in a forceful forceful and negative way. His message to me was, you've used the magic words badly, and now you're at serious risk of going to hell. He was telling me I needed to repent for calling somebody a fool, which, of course, I hadn't. Although, perhaps, in the back of my mind, I was choosing some choice words for him, not just for misunderstanding, but for overreacting. But it's this particular passage that that teacher was was using and speaking to, and I think it might be one of the most misunderstood passages. It's certainly one of the most misunderstood verses in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's because of a word that we don't often use. raka, spelled R-A-C-A or R-A-C-H-A, Uh, Either way, it's footnoted in the uh, version of the Bible that I shared as being an Aramaic term of contempt. Now, it's interesting. This is an Aramaic word that's been held and non-translated and delivered inside what had otherwise been a Greek text. The New Testament essentially written in Greek with, obviously, in this case, some Aramaic. And the Old Testament being primarily written in Hebrew. And at this point, this is before we had a Latin translation that would then be adopted by the Catholic Church. So I want to quote from two or three websites and provide some different perspectives here because I think what we're dealing with is fairly interesting. Conceptually it's not hard to understand. Jesus is basically saying that it is wrong to murder someone but it's also wrong to be so angry with someone and have such um, animosity towards someone that you want to murder them. That that desire to murder them is wrong even if you don't act upon it. And Calling somebody uh, worthless or a moron or a a fool is just as bad as well, that Jesus was commanding people not to have the kind of murderous intents that they would have to restrain, but also not to use the kind of language, the derogatory kind of language toward others that would lead to, to, that would escalate to those levels of violence. These are interesting words, of course, as I record this. In uh, very late March of the year 2016, Uh, as it applies to our presidential process. And I continue to be mystified at people who identify themselves as Christians, uh, evangelical Christians, Bible-believing Christians, Christians who would argue for the inerrancy of the Bible, who uh, stand by and not just ignore, but support the actions of presidential candidates like Donald Trump, who have called people much, much worse than simply fool or raka. But to get to the bottom of our question today... I think we've got to define raka because it has more than one potential meaning. And one of those meanings might actually answer our question quickly and affirmatively. Did Jesus denounce the use of a homophobic slang term in one of his sermons? Well, maybe, maybe not. I'm at a website called BlowTheTrumpet.org, which actually has a, an interesting facts question and answer for the word raka The question here at this website is, when giving the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Whoever is angry with his brother without cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whoever shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of the fire of hell. What does Raka mean? Raka is an Aramaic transliteration for Rika, a term expressing contempt, scorn, or disdain. The Greek word, rakah, means empty, vain, or worthless one, simplifying a lack of intellect, like an imbecile or a blockhead. It is only found in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. The Jews used it as a word of contempt. It is derived from a root meaning, to spit. So there's one perspective. We go to another site called ministersbestfriend.com and their page, a Hebrew word, rakah, homosexual. That's sort of the headline of it written in 1992. This is a July 1992 entry. It says this. It is not correct to say that Jesus never dealt with homosexuality. He did so, but in an oblique way in Matthew 5:22, because the wording was not understood, was left out of some versions of the Bible, though many included it. Jesus says, But I say unto you that whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. Raka is an unknown word for many centuries, but in the 1920s, there were a number of discoveries on old papyri, two of which used the word in a context that made its meaning clear for the first time. Raka was a Hebrew loan word used by the Hellenic settlers as a part of their vulgar speech. It is virtually identical to the modern-day term, faggot. So while Jesus never mentioned homosexuality, per se, he did warn his followers not to not to commit verbal gay bashing. Now, that's one perspective, coming from a political point of view. Here is the opposite political point of view, dealing with the same question. William A. Percy and an images page, a sort of a dictionary page of sorts, for the same word, rakah, in this case spelled R-A-C-H-A, rather than R-A-C-A. The word is found in only some manuscripts of the New Testament Gospel of Matthew at 522 where the King James Version reads, But I say unto you that whosoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. The text of the Gospel includes no explanatory gloss, as is usual with foreign words that would otherwise have been unintelligible to the Greek reader, and the majority of modern commentators understand the word as Semitic. Raka equals Hebrew for empty, empty empty-headed, brainless, Yet there is an alternative meaning proposed in 1922 by Frederick Schuthlas, an expert in Syriac and Palestinian Christian Aramaic. He equated the word with the Hebrew for rach, soft, which would thus be equivalent to the Greek for a passive effeminate homosexual. Further, in 1934, a papyrus was published from Hellenistic Egypt of the year 257 before the Christian era that contained the word rachios, in an unspecified derogatory sense. But the parallel text suggests that it had the meaning of faggot. This writer, uh, William A. WilliamAPercy.com, uses this to suggest, well, he says this. So Jesus is represented as forbidding his followers to utter insults directed at the other party's masculinity, a practice that has scarcely gone out of fashion in the ensuing 19th centuries, as the contemporary vogue of faggot uh, well attests. So it cannot be maintained that Jesus, quote, never mentioned homosexuality, as some gay Christian apologists claim. In the sphere of sexual morality, Jesus demanded an even higher standard than did the contemporary Palestinian and Hellenistic Judaism, which uncompromisingly rejected and condemned the homosexual expression that was commonplace and tolerated in the Gentile world. So, this particular writer uses the same passage, drawing the same conclusion from the interpretation of this word as as understood since the 1920s. But he uses it as a way of saying that clearly people who say that Jesus never condemned homosexuality are wrong. I think the truth is probably, again, somewhere in the middle. It may be that if you accept this interpretation of this word, rekha, that you can't make the argument that Jesus never spoke about homosexuality but whether jesus condemned homosexuality because he condemned the use of words denigrating people in a verbally violent way well that's quite a stretch here's the point of view that i find most persuasive on the question of this particular use of terminology and what it means and i'm going to share it in some detail because I lost sight of it for a while I've talked about this question a couple of times in the past in inappropriate conversations and um, just to leave walk the Earth's focus for a minute and look back at other places you can go to hear me speak about this issue I'm going to drop a name the name of a couple of previous inappropriate conversations podcasts where there's perhaps more detail one of them was inappropriate conversations number 106. The Violence of Denial came around uh, December, maybe late November in 2012, They're reviewing a podcast, reviewing a Christian podcast, and answering some questions about their take on uh, the Bible, Jesus in particular, and homosexuality. The other one, Inappropriate Conversations 150, Opening the Scriptures, came out in September of 2014. That one went uh, went into what I would call at length about questions related to scripture Uh, What Jesus said, what Jesus didn't say, what it meant, what Paul taught, what Peter understood, how it relates to the Old Testament. Um, A three and a half hour podcast, if I'm not mistaken, going from memory. So when looking at this from an inappropriate conversations perspective, there's much more detail. But from Walk the Earth, I've been trying to quote just narrow clips, just little moments of other bloggers who've expressed a point of view, but one of the blog posts that I have, you know, had in my mind when I recorded those previous podcasts, I think we're going to quote at some greater length here, not completely, but at some greater length, mainly because it's the first time I encountered this, and I think it's managed reasonably well. EvolEquals.com, E-V-O-L-E-Q-U-A-L-S.com, and the article is from August eleventh, two 2012, the writer is called Tom Sense, T-H-O-M-S-E-N-S-E, um, surely a handle, not a real name. And the headline is The Homosexuality Question Part 2, Jesus Did Say Something. And this would, of course, lead me to believe that the answer to today's question might be yes, because I'm finding people from both sides of the political spectrum who find persuasive these 1920s and 30s discoveries, what they mean to the etymology of the word itself, and how that word should be interpreted. Although it is fair to say that it is still a minority view in biblical interpretation, it's also fair to question whether that minority view has less to do with scholarship and more to do with the answer that I want to provide, the thing I want to believe, the thing we've always done or taught around here. But here's the article from Tom Sense. This is pretty much everything the Bible has to say about gay stuff. It's how I started the last paragraph of part one, but that's a little bit disingenuous. There are other passages within the Bible that are of interest to LGBTs, but they are not as explicit and directive as the six ones I examined. There are some possible love affairs, most notably David and Jonathan and Ruth and Naomi, and there's a matter of this weird word, Rekah, found in the Sermon on the Mount nowhere else. What is it? Well, first, we've answered the question of what it is before, so I think I'm going to skip down a little bit. And the other thing is that I'm not 100% sure I'm comfortable assigning um, sexual feelings toward the examples that he uses here. We'll talk about that more in the next Inappropriate Conversations, looking at friendship, and perhaps in a blog post between now and then, also looking at friendship. But back to the article. It's pretty obvious that this word raka is some sort of slang word pejorative, and dirty. And because it wasn't a nice word, no one ever wrote it down, except in this one biblical spot. In fact, no other ancient textual source of the word was found until 1934, or perhaps just a little earlier. This is Greg speaking. He shares from IGF Culture Watch the same quote that I shared a moment ago from the William A. Percy website, and says this of it. Aha, now things are starting to make some sense. Why would Jesus say stupid In his second prohibition, and you fool, in his third, the answer is that he would not. Jesus is telling us in Matthew 5:22, in his second prohibition, not to call people out as faggots. Plain as simple as can be. Okay, it's not exactly a ringing endorsement of LGBTs. Jesus's rakah comment does tell Christians to get off LGBTs' back about the persecution stuff, but doesn't condone LGBTs themselves. But there is another spot in the Bible that does better. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed, and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. I say to you that many will come from the east and the west, and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And a servant was healed at that moment. What? This doesn't sound like much of an LGBT endorsement. Once again, it's all in the translation. The original word used that was translated as servant is paeus. And what's a paeus? Basically a squire with benefits. Not all Romans use their paeus like this. But Luke corroborates that in this particular instance, the Roman centurion mentioned in Matthew probably did. In Luke 7, verses 1-10, through 10, the story of the centurion and his paeus is told again, but this time the servant is referred to as an intimus de luce. From St. John's MCC community website, the word de luce gener- generically means slave. It could not mean son or boy. Intimus means honored. So the combination would produce a contradiction of honored slave, meaningless unless it implied to a junior or younger male partner. Thus, the meaning of paus in Matthew is limited to the partner in a same-sex relationship. Reputedly, the shield-bearers for Roman soldiers were their lovers. In other words, Matthew and Luke both tell a tale of one half of an LGBT couple being told that he had the greatest faith in all of Israel for believing Jesus could heal his lover sight unseen. Unlike the woman who had been accused of adultery, Jesus never told the centurion to go and sin no more. This LGBT endorsement sounds a bit better now, doesn't it? Well, if you're looking for good, better, best in this realm, what I'm looking for, quoting here from Evil Equals and these other websites, is an understanding of what exactly Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount by offering this particular word of warning, things he didn't want us to do, which I've translated into the question, whether Jesus denounced the use of a homophobic slang term in one of his sermons. So, first, to answer this question, finally and once and for all, I think I need to talk a little bit about my personal faith and my belief in the answer to the question, Who was Jesus? This matters. It matters a lot. Now, I know on both Walk the Earth and inappropriate conversations, I try to be as deferential as I possibly can. In fact, a couple of episodes back, Jesus' quote bubble, um, the Inappropriate Conversations episode, I think 179 or 180, was focused on uh, reading the words of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. And at the time that I was going to go through an extensive reading of all of Matthew's chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7 in their entirety, I was trying to grant for people who might have a different point of view about the Bible than I did that. These were words that we can place into Jesus' mouth because Matthew has done it for us. And that's a true statement whether you believe the Bible is true or fiction. It's a true statement whether you believe Jesus existed or as described or whether he was a composite figure or a, a fictionalization of some sort. But that's all just to be deferential, to hold all of my listeners in a positive regard, to allow for a great range of ideas ...to permit conversation and dialogue, but that ultimately needs to come to some sort of conclusion. And for me, that conclusion is that I don't have any trouble believing that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. I don't have trouble with it because I don't believe that that necessarily ties in to what modern evangelical Christianity interprets as this notion of infallibility. This notion that somehow the writers of those books had no need to have a personality... Um, weren't controlling the pen with their own fingers, that sort of thing. I think that the Bible is capable of giving us several, quote-unquote, eyewitness accounts of Jesus' resurrection, which have certain inconsistencies with each other. Because there is credibility, in my mind, to those different accounts. I've always described it as this notion that if you had three or four eyewitnesses to an event, And they described the event that they all saw allegedly independently of each other, without collaborating or colluding with each other, using the exact same descriptive terms strung together in sentences that are composed in the exact same sentence structure. Your only conclusion could be that there was probably no truth in what they were saying, that what they were saying was surely a fabrication, because it is more likely that they're lying and telling the story exactly the same way than the coincidence of four completely independent people seeing a independent event and describing it in great detail and in the exact same terminology. So in other words, I don't have any problem with the Bible being the inspired Word of God and the accounts of Gospel writers having differences in them. This doesn't bother me. And therefore, if I take those accounts seriously, I don't have any problem with Jesus being who the Bible describes him to be. Uh, There was a movie a while back... uh, I don't know if it was directed by Bill Maher, but it featured Bill Maher, called Religulous. And among Bill Maher's suggestions was that at no point in the Bible did Jesus ever claim deity, and at no point in the New Testament was deity claimed on his behalf. That's a claim that's so ridiculous that, frankly, I've wasted words sharing the thought, the effort to use those terms to call them wrong— probably does those terms more justice than they deserve. Even an elementary school-level reading of the New Testament, or certainly a junior high school-level reading, would tell you that that's not a valid interpretation. John's Gospel alone would tell you as much. But just looking here at Matthew's Gospel, I have no problem with the notion that Matthew, with some reasonable degree of accuracy, has recorded what either he saw or what he was told about this particular sermon, given on a hillside for this other particular group of people. Therefore, if I grant for the sake of argument that there is some truth to the story, and if I take the Jesus presented in the Gospels at his word, then we're not just talking about a uh, somewhat reliable historical record of a person who really existed, a person who, of course, we have other historical records, uh, writings about from Josephus and Tacitus and others. But no, to me, it's more important to say that. This person, Jesus, this character, again, to be deferential, if you want to think of him as a fictional character, there's no doubt that in this story, if you think it's fiction, he's depicted as both God and man, uh, tremendous power, healing abilities, so to speak, um, supernatural power. But I choose to look at it the other way and say, no, no, this is not... This is not a superhero story. This is not a, uh, a piece of fantastic uh, fantasy novelization. Let's say for the sake of argument that the events as described really happened. And the person and character of Jesus is, as he described, as being the person who is both God and man. This person who lived the perfect life and uh, died on the cross and rose from the grave and later ascended in heaven. This person, he had a level of omniscience and omnipotence to him. The Bible refers on multiple times. Jesus himself, later in Matthew's Gospel, I believe, talked about how he could call down legions of angels to defend him if he wanted to. He had a power and a knowledge that he was aware of and chose not to exercise. Therefore, it's not just enough for us to look at Jesus saying, "Hey, you shouldn't use this term," which back in the day might have meant to that audience something like "faggot" or some some derisive term toward men who are more uh, effeminate than other men, at the very least. It's not just that that is an indication that, on the one hand of the political spectrum, that, see, Jesus was aware of homosexuals and never said a a thing about how they were welcome into the kingdom of heaven. Not good enough. The reality is that Jesus knew that we were going to be having this conversation. This This is my theology, and this is why my theology is perhaps... More supernatural than you're even going to see on, like, the Trinity Broadcasting Network, where their belief in the power of Christ is power for their own political purpose. It's power that they can turn into cash and put into their bank account. Now, I've got a different perspective. I believe that at the time Jesus said those things, he knew that on this this particular night in late March, he knew more than 2,000 years ago, That on this particular night in late March, I would be sitting in front of a microphone, in front of a home computer, with recording software running, looking at this particular word and this particular question and asking myself, what does it mean? Jesus had an opportunity. The gospel writers had an opportunity to speak through history. It would have been so easy. He only would have been quoting things that had come out of the very laws in in the Old Testament that he vowed in that same sermon he was going to fulfill forever. It would have been so easy for him to have said you know what, I've told you about loving God and loving your neighbor but there is this one more thing you've got to make sure you never ever do or you never ever defend other people doing or you never ever ignore other people doing because it really is at the end of the day kind of none of my business. But if I keep Butting in just a little bit, if I make this my business, not so much in the interest of, you know, defending the actions of anyone, but instead defending the integrity of not just the words, but the knowledge itself of Jesus of Nazareth, the knowledge of the Christ, the notion of necessary being and the idea of being not just always present, all powerful, all good, but also all knowing. Jesus had ample opportunity To speak and chose not to. And I'm very interested in the meaning of the words he chose not to address. And perhaps just the one word that he did choose to address. Because I think that gets me close enough to an answer that I'm very comfortable with. We may come back to the question itself. Say, hey, you know what? Jesus did denounce the use of a term. But whether we can actually affirmatively say that that was a homophobic slang term. eh, Maybe I'm getting beyond what we actually can say we know with scholarly confidence. Not sure. But the part to be unsure about isn't Jesus' denunciation of the term. The part to be unsure about is not whether he chose the time to speak in this way during a sermon. The only part that we're unsure about is the exact definition of the word itself. So, what I tend to do in these situations, when debating, either with others or, frankly, with myself is flip it on its head and say, if we can't say with absolute confidence what Jesus was saying, can we look and answer the question from the perspective of what we can be sure he was not saying? And it works a little bit like this. Let's say that we decide that Jesus was only using the term in the context of meaning empty-headed or foolish or somebody who's repulsive and should be spat upon that those other potential definitions of the word and never to use that terminology never to justify uh spitting on people or setting them up as undesirables or outcasts don't do that is there any room in that interpretation of the definition of this one aramaic word that says jesus would actually be okay in any way whatsoever with westboro baptist church And I think the answer is obviously no, that even if we decide that Jesus wasn't absolutely and unquestionably denouncing the use of a phrase like God hates fags, both for taking the Lord's name in vain and for using a word that he didn't want his followers using directed angrily and derisively at other people. At the very least, we can be 100% sure that Jesus would not have been on board with it. That there's this line between what did Jesus forbid and what did Jesus command? And in between, there's a lot of stuff. But this stuff, this Westboro Baptist hysteria, the way that that worldview is so easily uh, consistent with ideas that we've heard over the years coming out of focus on the family and the Family Research Council and the American Family Association, and frankly, the Republican Party, that It's easy to say, well, all the other possible definitions of that word, even if they have nothing to do with this homophobic slang term, are still consistent enough that we can know that Jesus wouldn't want you carrying around a sign in God's name, quoting scripture in God's name, or putting words into Jesus' mouth that definitely weren't there, making that denunciation. In other words, to me it comes down to the easy question. I'm more than willing to grant the idea that Jesus never spoke two words about homosexuality. It's the easy way out. Because if he never said anything about homosexuality, if we could all just agree about that then we don't have to worry about this Roman centurion's relationship with his slave, whom he said was intimate, who was somebody that he loved, who he wanted Jesus to heal. We don't have to worry about that. We can gloss over it because we've decided right up front that that's too scary of an idea for modern conservative evangelical Christianity, and therefore Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. And then we come to this one word in the Sermon on the Mount, and we say, you know what, that word could be sort of a gay slur, but it also could be just, you know, you know, calling somebody you know, stinky or stupid. And, you know, maybe that's the safer interpretation to say that it just means empty-headed or foolish, and then we don't have to worry about Jesus saying anything about homosexuality. And then we come right back to the idea that, okay, from people who have a uh, pro-gay rights allied perspective might be willing to grant that, Jesus didn't say two things about homosexuality, that when it comes to the Gospels, the New Testament accounts, Jesus was a complete void on the issue, and that perhaps people on the opposite political spectrum who've been putting these kind of words in Jesus' mouth. I mean, the Westboro Baptist Church identifies themselves as a Baptist church. They believe, and I I think they could pass a lie detector test, not that they're telling truth, because I think we've kind of clearly gotten to the point of understanding that they're They're full of lies on this issue, but they believe they're telling the truth, whether they're telling the truth or not. But we're much more comfortable deciding that Westboro Baptist is wrong, that Jesus never said anything about homosexuality, because then we can eliminate those folks from the conversation. But what we're left with isn't a nothing. We're actually left with a decision that if the person who knew and understood everything in recorded human history, who had a knowledge going back to the very creation of the earth, and had the ability to transcend time and space and therefore knew everything that would happen in the future from there. And even, as documented in places like Matthew chapter 24, predicted events in his, among his contemporaries that would happen approximately 40 years later. And those events happened more or less as he described them. Perhaps uh, he used more flowery language than the actual experience of carnage in Jerusalem and in the temple in particular uh, would have, you know, maybe people would have described it differently if they were dying at the sword at the hand of of occupying Rome. But he nevertheless clearly demonstrated the ability to predict the future. And I don't think that that ability was limited to 40 years. I think that ability extends way beyond just 2,100 years as well. But I believe that the answer to the question I'm trying to deal with today would have been known by Jesus at the time he was delivering the Sermon on the Mount, such that he could have planted a seed in the minds of the eyewitnesses who would then share their accounts orally and let that turn into Matthew's gospel and let that be codified into scripture through church councils and defended through translations over the centuries to the point where we can look upon it now and say, of course that's the answer. See, Jesus' silence, in many ways, speaks much more loudly than anything anyone could attribute to him whether that be attribution through somebody who is a believer like me, or attribution through somebody who is simply there to deny that any of this is true or real in the first place. I choose to believe that those Bible accounts are true and real, because it carries with it the tremendous power, not only of the things that Jesus said, but also of the things Jesus did not say. Because it is both in what was spoken and what was left unspoken that Jesus unquestionably denounced the use of homophobic slang terms, denounced the use of verbal violence against people who are perhaps a little bit more vulnerable and somewhat outside the power structure of the audience to whom he was speaking. And therefore, it makes it not only true that at least to some degree, at least to a maybe and more likely a probably degree, that Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount was denouncing the use of of a homophobic slain term, was denouncing homophobia in all of its current manifestations, but that our inability as a church universal to rally around that simple and obvious fact is the single greatest denunciation of our faith. It is like us as Christians standing up and saying, well, you can't trust that Bible because it says some things that I'm just going to pretend weren't there. And you can't trust that Jesus character, because he's way out of step with what the Roman Catholic Church has taught for the last, say, 1,500 years or 1,000 years. So we have a real problem if we as Christians are denying things which are black and white in the text as being the things that Jesus taught, and the things that, frankly, are so obvious that he would have taught anyway. If we believe at all in the concept that he taught in Matthew 25 about the least of these— it's a concept that says that once you've decided someone's lesser than you, you need to treat them like they're Christ Himself. And if our choice of action toward people who are we perceive, and I think, perceive inappropriately as being less than us, is to verbally spit at them, we're definitely using the term raka, in action. We're making that word manifest, real, and harmful in the lives of others in a way that Jesus absolutely at unquestionably denounced in the Sermon on the Mount. If and as you were led, please join me in prayer. Jesus, I know every time we open up the Gospels and look for your words, so often found in red letters, depending on the publisher, we're taking a chance. We're taking a chance that we're going to misinterpret what those words say and mean. We're taking a chance that the person who translated those words from Greek, and in this case, Aramaic, into other languages, including English, somehow got it wrong. So Lord, I humbly submit that I cannot be 100% confident that I know exactly what you said and exactly what I'm supposed to do with what you said. But I certainly can follow your example. I've searched the scriptures and can find no record of you turning to among the most vulnerable people in our society, including people who may or may not be on the right path, and condemning them violently. Lord, I just don't see it. So Jesus, continue to lead me to your scriptures, to lead me to the words, and through your Holy Spirit, to open up my heart and mind to see what you have there for me to see. And if what you have there is the violent denunciation of a whole group of people, then Lord, forgive me for missing it. And missing it in such a big way that I don't even know who I am in relationship with you. Because I'm clearly on a horrifically bad path. But I've read the Gospels, Lord. I have prayed to, through, for, and about you, Jesus, more times than I can count. And if, if you want me to be dismissive and violent, if you want me to be homophobic and misogynist, then... I need to do a better job of listening, and the Holy Spirit needs to do a better job of telling, because, Lord, I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing it to such an extent that I actually feel like I should ask your forgiveness for raising such a obvious, almost to the point of being silly, question about your character. Forgive me, Lord. Amen what happened this morning man i agree it was peculiar but water into wine I- all shapes and sizes vincent you shouldn't talk to me that way man if my answers frighten you vincent then you should cease asking scary questions Next on Walk the Earth, we're going to return to a question I left somewhat unanswered earlier this year, whether it is acceptable to recognize and celebrate the holy days of other religions with those believers. Thanks for listening.